Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. I don't want to worry you, but if you live to the age of 80, that translates to just 4,000 weeks on the planet, which seems terrifyingly short when there is so much to do. How do you make the most of your finite time without driving yourself mad trying to make the most of your finite time? My guest today is an award-winning journalist who wrote The Guardian's This Column Will Change Your Life for 14 years before stepping down last September. He is the author of three books, his latest being 4,000 Weeks, Time and How to Use It. Oliver Bertman, thanks for joining me. Thanks very much indeed. So I notice uh, at the back of your book, it says that your email, The Imperfectionist, is only twice monthly at a time when Substackers are bombarding subscribers <laughs> with content. Is, is this your little generous contribution to time management? Yeah, right. I thought I'm not going to... I'm not going to... Uh weigh people down with uh three three times weekly uh, emails yeah well i think it's time management for me as well right but uh, i think after i finished doing that column and it's and it's shocking to hear how many years i did it for i needed to break the, the weekly cadence because it does something to your to your uh, brain that is partly great and partly not great well i mean the column has obviously led to all kinds of things and i remember you started out at the guardian as a general feature writer on g2 how did you end up going down this path I think what the the true story about the how I ended up writing that column is that I was already reading all these books on how to like organize my life and be less stressed about stuff, and uh, I, I failed to conceal this fact well enough from Merope Mills, who was the editor of Guardian Weekend at the time. So she savvily decided to get some content out of me. There's a sort of psychoanalytic answer to the question instead, which is that you know I think we're all drawn to things that we that we struggle with. And uh, it was a great sort of excuse the gu- under the guise of work to be able to explore all these ideas and these approaches to life and these questions that it's kind of a bit embarrassing sometimes if you haven't got some alibi like, oh, I've got to read this book for a column, you know. Well, your books tend to, I, I suppose, get, get stocked uh, in, the, in the self-help section. How do you feel about that word, that, that concept? I mean, yeah, you're right about my own books. There's also these kind of strange genres that have come up in the last decade or so, right? Like smarter thinking. Um, oh, a friend calls I- some thinky books. <laughs> and I think a lot of this is just an attempt to sort of not use the phrase self-help. Uh, my position has always been like, there shouldn't be anything embarrassing about the concept of self-help if that just means wanting to find ways to live a better life, be a better person, get more of the important things done. Obviously, it has developed a reputation based on all sorts of bad approaches to that and exploitative and and cynical ones. But ancient Greek and Roman philosophy was self-help, explicitly so. So no shame in it. Yeah, and I should say it's like very much not one of those books which turns out to be kind of a a memoir in disguise. But obviously your own um, sort of experiences, your journey, if you will, is part (laughs) of it. And you describe yourself as a reformed productivity geek. What made you change your ways? (laughs) Well, I think, you know, it was just this creeping sense that it had been several years now or more, maybe more than several of trying technique after technique with this kind of unspoken, occasionally conscious belief that I was finally one day going to get to this place where I felt in control in the driver's seat, like I knew what I was doing and I could handle anything that was thrown at me. And, you know, I think what happens it's a version of a midlife crisis in a way, is that you just gradually start to see that this isn't ever going to happen. And then I write in the book about a sort of acute moment of this sitting on a bench on a winter morning in Brooklyn, where I live and where I'm speaking to you from. uh, And just, you know, with even more to do that day than usual, trying to figure out what incredibly clever scheme or scheduling approach I was going to use to somehow get through it all. And just suddenly realizing like, wait a second, 
none of this is ever going to work. Like I'm never going to like use all these techniques and self-discipline to power through to this position of serenity with respect to time. And that was the start of my understanding. I think that, you know, the reason you can't ever get there is because that is to do with wanting to be more than finite and to do something that like humans can't do. It's not because you haven't found the right technique yet. Well, it reminded me of something a friend of mine said years ago, uh, that he was taking a week off at home. He says, I'm, I'm going to sort my life out, <laughs> uh, you know, to sort of clear the decks and then be the person who always wanted to be. And I was like, I, I think you might need more than a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in fact, it's what, yeah, totally. It's worse than that because I mean, I've been there. I've, I've been that person, but it's worse than that because the action of clearing the decks fills the decks ever further right mm. so like you know if you if you if you do and i'm still pray to this sometimes if you do sit down and say like, okay today and tomorrow i'm just going to get i'm just going to get through all my emails i'm going to deal with them all it's going to be done and you actually put more effort and more focus than you usually do to clearing the decks well what happens you know 50 70 percent of those emails require further replies from the people you send them to so you open your inbox the next day and it's um much more full than it would have been if you had yeah. Uh, embarked on this uh, this um, crazy quest. Well, you mentioned age there. You're a year younger than me, I think. Do you think that some of these ideas, uh, particularly I think there's a potent one uh, about sort of accepting who you are, not all the, the sort of the ideal version that you could be, does come with reaching a certain age and that perhaps accepting the limitations of, of life, of time, of, of your own personality is a lot harder, you know, when you're 21? Yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I tried really hard writing this book to not make it a sort of age specific and to sort of really focus on the things that I think are universal. But apart from anything else, yeah, I think if there's wisdom here in this book that I have acquired, the, the way I've acquired it is by trying all the alternatives that um, people are inevitably drawn to in their younger adulthood and finding that they either don't work or they only work for a short period. And then you sort of accumulate that experience and of course the problem with experience it's a I, there's a cliched saying that i'm going to garble here but it's the greatest teacher but the lesson always arrives too late right it's too late for me to start in on this way of thinking about time a few years earlier than i did but uh it's not impossible that somebody reading this might might be uh you know earlier in that journey and i could i could save them some of it or maybe you have to go through it all uh right to the end one yourself i don't know Maybe your subtitle could have been, it's too late for me, but save yourselves. <laughs> but isn't that really what everyone's doing with writing any sort of book that is based on any kind of acquired experience? You're, you're hoping to sort of pass on something that you've found. Although again, not, I hope, from the, in the tone of someone who's uh, totally perfectly sorted his life out and is now giving uh, you lucky people the chance to copy me because that would be also pretty pretty dishonest account of my life. <laughs> Well, I mean, you talk about there's sort of different different kinds of to-do list, and there's obviously one which is just like wash dishes, reply to email X, and then there's a kind of larger ones, the sort of your ambitions. Um, and I remember just one that was on there for my entire 20s before I just deleted it, which was learn French, <laughs> which it turns out uh, I never really managed to find the time for. And, and you sort of advocate this very realistic view of the limited time available, which therefore necessitates tough choices um what have you personally given up trying to fit in what was your what was perhaps your learn french that's an interesting question i feel like i'm on the verge of that acceptance when it comes to a regular meditation practice because i 
know so many people who do this and I know several sort of very experienced teachers of it and I'm so I so admire the the place they've made for it in their lives but uh, but I think I'm coming to to realize that may just not be something that I uh, spend a, a chunk of time most days of the rest of my life doing the th- the place that all resonates for me a bit more is not so much with the life ambitions although I'm sure I could think of some others that are my equivalent of learn French but it's just on that daily level of like you catch yourself at eight o'clock in the morning, nine o'clock in the morning when you're thinking through the day, imagining that you might get to some extraordinary place in terms of no longer being nagged at by 50 things that are on your list and just remembering like, no, that's not how it works. It's probably going to be three of them. That's fine. Usually uh, once you're not, uh, once you're not struggling to do the impossible, it's actually really fulfilling to focus on, on what is possible. And I mean, the idea of what constitutes a good life is is age old. But when did the idea of what we would call time management emerge in our culture? Like, who's to blame for the, the <laughs> cult of productivity? Because I mean, I know there's you mentioned Frederick Winslow Taylor, who was a great sort of, you know, management yeah. scientist who ended up being parodied in loads of dystopian novels. But I mean, was it did it start before him? I mean, you can place this wherever you want. On one level in the book, I try to suggest that, uh, you know, the very idea of time as as a resource that could be managed is something that for huge swathes of pre-industrial history, most people wouldn't have had, right? Sort of early medieval English peasant. It's not just that they didn't have the kind of jobs that demand time management. It's that the whole question would have made no sense. Time was just the medium in which life unfolded and the idea that you could sort of get a vantage point outside of it and then direct it somehow would have been not comprehensible in the modern era i think you know it's generally there's this sort of slightly apocryphal story that it was a time management consultant or i guess he wasn't a time management consultant at the start of it called ivy lee who first tried to apply taylor's uh, efficiency ideas um, which had all been focused on manual labor to try Mm. to apply them to white collar work. Taylor's approach to um, iron workers in Pennsylvania was deeply dehumanizing of those iron workers. Uh, So not a good thing, treating them like sort of animals or machines. But it made a certain kind of sense because it was a question of, you know, are there fewer movements of your limbs that you could achieve the same outcome with? Once this kind of efficiency idea ethos is applied to white collar work, it instantly becomes way more fraught and complicated because you sort of need some other guiding value than pure Mm. efficiency. If all you're doing is trying to become more efficient, then as I hope I explain in the book, you're just going to fill those newly efficient systems with even more work and not necessarily the right work. You mentioned um, Arnold, fascinating book by Arnold Bennett of omelette fame. Yes. (laughs) Which which seemed quite modern in some ways, just like how to get more done. Yeah, he wrote this great little book called How to Live on 24 Hours a Day, which was clearly aimed at sort of a new generation of, um, I guess, you know, Edwardian commuters who were getting back from the city to the suburbs at five thirty, six o'clock or whatever at night and feeling too tired to do all the things that they wanted to do. And, I mean, it's a great book and he's such a funny writer. I sort of criticize the book or at least say it's out of date in mine because he does still hold on to this notion that if you organize the day right, you're never going to have to decide to neglect 
anything important. And, you know, maybe it was true in, in 1908, but that's not how technology and culture has left us now. He also just assumes that you have servants, which obviously makes, uh, <laughs> makes things a lot easier. <laughs> top, top tip number one. Um, because back then, I suppose in in his his lifetime, there was huge faith, and you get it from um, utopian socialists as well. This idea that machines are going to liberate us all. And I remember reading a book by James Gleick Faster years ago, and it really stuck mm-hmm. in my head the way that you know lifts come along and save you from using the stairs, and then you're furiously pressing the button because it's <laughs> taking too long. Microwaves come along, and then you're just like you would rather have slightly lukewarm tea than wait for the final sort of 10 seconds. Right. And that seems to be another lesson, I suppose, that, that sort of society learns, that if you keep inventing machines to save you time, you're, you're, you're just your attitude to time changes with it. Right. So you never end up feeling, oh, that's great. This technology is saving me time so I can relax and feel at ease. You actually just get more impatient. And you always think microwaves are a great example. I know lots of us aren't any currently or anymore necessarily working in offices as much, but like the office microwave always has like seven seconds on the clock that you have to cancel out before using it yourself because people are just like they really held out to the end of their two minutes and they just <laughs> couldn't cope any longer. The way I fit this into my argument about how we're always trying to sort of do more than finitude as a human allows us to do is that I think all these technologies, they sort of push us, they make us feel like we're just on the cusp of having this kind of godlike control over time, do anything you want instantaneously. And so it's all the more frustrating when there's still two minutes for the microwave or like eight seconds for for a slow loading web page or something. You talk a lot about, you know, how we how we sort of struggle with making the right choices. And and politicians, I mean, for, for decades now, have loved to talk about giving citizens as much choice as possible, choice of choice of schools, choice of healthcare providers, et cetera, et cetera. But as um I noticed the other day, the great thinker Loki in the Avengers movie argues, are we actually quite bad at dealing with a huge array of options? Yeah, totally. I mean this this basic idea about if you give people a choice of 40 kinds of jam in the supermarket, they're going to enjoy the one they choose less than if they had a, a smaller range. I, th- I think part of what this is, again, is it's, it's this idea of sort of enabling and feeding our illusion, our delusion that we might get to the place where we can have everything, choose among all options whenever we want, never have to make tough choices. It's obviously much more tormenting to know that there are these alternatives or to believe that there are the, the the case that's always referenced which i think is a good one is internet dating firstly a lot of those internet dating platforms have as their business model the idea that their consumers will not be satisfied by someone that they meet and will need to return to the to the platform and spend more time on site and then secondly it's just this idea that it, it's so tormenting and difficult it's much harder to commit to a, a relationship when you're sort of being endlessly reminded of the idea that there are lots of other people who might be a better fit for you. Uh, whereas, you know, if we all grew up on an island with 15 possible members of the relevant sex to date, everyone would just pair up and be, be happy with it. Because there's, there's an example, I think, if I'm remembering it right, in the book about an experiment where people were asked to select an art print from a selection. Yeah. And then half of them were told, right, that's it, you made your choice, live with it. And then the other mm-hmm. half were told, well, if, you, if you're not sure then in a month's time, you can change it for one of the others. 
And he said, found that the, actually the appreciation of the art was much, much greater in the people that felt like they'd made a choice. When you think about it, it makes perfect sense. And it, and it links to all sorts of lessons that we feel we know about big commitments in life. Once you've made some kind of commitment that is irreversible or effectively irreversible, it's just much less troubling to you spend much less time sort of wondering if you should back out and much more time moving forward and making the best of it. Like something like the traditional marriage vows are not only intended to keep uh, a couple together in a marriage through the bad times, which is how we usually think of it, I think, but but actually to make the good times better too, because it's this kind of statement of giving up the uh, agonizing thought that maybe you should consider leaving the relationship. Obviously, people leave marriages, but you know what I mean? It's mm. like general mm. sort of a general focus on the idea that it's like, okay, forwards is <laughs> actually very liberating and freeing because otherwise we cling to this notion that we might be able to keep our options open forever and fail to sort of be in life as much as we as much as we otherwise might and there's a, there's another sort of a political idea that emerges later in the, the book when you talk about a desynchronized society that you know you've got people with with breaks at different times holidays at different times individual schedules and you suggest something that hadn't occurred to me was that this actually affects things like like grassroots political organizing so do you as well as i suppose this book being addressed to people and how they feel about their own lives do you think that this sort of obsession with with sort of individual timekeeping is politically disempowering or can be? Yes, I think there's a big political dimension to all of this, um, also to the kind of jobs that make impossible demands and et cetera, et cetera. But on the stuff you're talking about, about how much we rely on time being synchronized with other people's time for anything, relaxation and rest and, and recreation, but also absolutely, you know, how can you have a political movement if um, people can never be either physically or virtually in the same place at the same time? And I think there's a wonderful quotation from uh, Hannah Arendt there in the book, which is a, a famous one that um, totalitarian movements are mass organizations of isolated individuals, that actually it really serves the worst elements in politics to have us all uh, in this kind of desynchronized state, totally reliant on certain TV networks or internet platforms for our information and not sort of getting out there and being in the world, creating a, an alternative to power structures. So yeah, I mean, what is the purpose of life if you can't ever find the time to do the things that matter? What's the purpose of politics if it's not for building societies where we can do all the kind of things we want to do together? Because where I suppose I thought that this book was, was sort of so different from some other um you know, but I suppose under this very broad self-help umbrella is that they're meant to try generally make you feel better. Uh, <laughs> not, you know, that they're, they're meant to, no, sorry, I don't mean that. I, I don't mean to make me feel worse, but I mean, they're meant to be, they're meant to be kind of, look, if you just do this, if you master this one weird trick, everything will be fine. And actually this is, this is about a quite a sort of tough perspective shift. And my main takeaway was this acceptance, accept your limitations, accept unpredictability, discomfort, mortality. Do you think that, the cultural messages that we generally get are sort of telling us not to accept any of those things and that acceptance is kind of defeat. It's like, you know, like you're giving up on your dreams or you're accepting you can't have it all. That this is this is sort of you're deliberately swimming against the tide, I suppose, of of, of what we're fed. Yes, totally. And this is one of my favorite topics. I think, you know, acceptance <laughs> 
what you mean, I think, here by acceptance and what I mean is not resignation. You know, it's not it's not the idea that um, we can't aim to have meaningful, exciting lives. It's to do with accepting that things are the way they are rather than that they must always remain the way they are. And I think that huge amounts of self-help and certainly time management is all sort of serves this purpose of a kind of inner avoidance. It helps you sort of not have to face the way that things actually are. But you should want to face the way things actually are because it's from that basis that you can stop trying to do an impossible amount of things and actually have the time and energy and focus to do the things that, that matter. So it's, I accept that, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily make you feel happier in the narrowest sense of that phrase. It makes you feel, it makes things feel a bit realer and it gives you a certain kind of traction or purchase on life. I think it's kind of bracing, yes. <laughs> I suppose, is the, is the, is the word I want to use. Yes. No, I did. I mean, I did find it kind of, it did, it, it did feel sort of clarifying and, and sort of reassuring in a, in a, in a way, but, but requiring this kind of, um, this shift. So yes, I do want to point out this will, this book will not depress you. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to ask you, considering you've been writing about happiness uh, or writing around the issue for a long time, do you think it's made you happier or is a better question? Has it made you redefine what happiness means? Or how much happiness one needs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I sort of myself left behind the, the, the word quite, I feel like mainly uh, um, some time ago. And I don't, being sort of um, pedantic about one's own book, I'd probably try and argue that this isn't a book about happiness per se. Mm. I definitely feel like I've grown as a result of all of this, that I understand more about how to live in a way that feels meaningful and worth it very far from perfectly. And I think I would be falling into all sorts of traps that I criticize if I were to claim that I'd sort of reached the, the pinnacle of any of this, because I'm not sure anyone ever does. But yeah, it's it, happiness is such a strange and elusive thing. It seems to be a byproduct of living a meaningful life that sort of comes and goes and can't be sort of summoned into existence. But, you know, I always, a little bit of a stuck record, refer to this question from uh, a writer and Jungian analyst whose work I really admire, James Hollis, who says you should ask of every big life choice, does this choice enlarge me or diminish me? And there's something almost spooky about this way of thinking about things, I think, like even when you don't know what's going to make you happy, even when you're not sure that, that the most comfortable option is the best one for you or whatever it might be, this question, you sort of do know whether something you're planning to do or that you're engaged in, however difficult and un unpleasant it might be at times, you know whether it's kind of enlarging you or whether it's kind of making your soul shrivel. Yeah. Um, you usually have a pretty good sense of that. And, you know, it can be right to stay in relationships that are difficult for that reason, and it can be right to leave them because they are the second kind, you know. So it's it's a really useful navigational I find. Unlike some thinky authors, you've uh, never been hospitalized after going on an all meat diet. So you must be doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> I, it is true that I have never been hospitalized after going on an all, all meat diet. And I've never, in fact, been on an all meat diet. Who knows? Maybe that's the next thing to try. <laughs> um, thanks for your time, Oliver Bertman. You can now tick the bunker daily off your to do list. <laughs> thank you so much 4000 weeks is out now published by bodley head and thanks to you for listening if you enjoy the bunker you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder patreon search patreon bunker podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads plus lots of extra benefits take care and see you next time
The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>